and welcome to a bit of a bumper edition for the Scout podcast. Uh, it's been a few weeks and there's been approximately 20,000 races in that time. So I'm Bethany Waring. I'm joined by Roger Gascoigne, Ida Wood and Alejandro Alonso Lopez to talk through, um, I'm not going to say all those races, but some of those 20,000 races and uh, all the other stuff that's been going on in between those many, many races. So um, I feel like we should get right into it, otherwise we'll be here all day and kick off with the Formula 2 doubleheader at, uh, Formula 2 and Formula 3, sorry, doubleheader at Monaco and Spain. Two very classic tracks, two quite different tracks and one track that is somewhat familiar but also very new in that it's a new layout that Formula 2 and Formula 3 hadn't been using before. So. How has everybody, how, summary of those two weekends, how have you guys recovered from that? Have you recovered from that? And what what does the championship look like now? Uh, shall I start with Monaco as that was the, or take them in, in chronological order. So um, yeah, Monaco, apart from the, the very first session of Formula 3 and then the end of the Grand Prix was was uh, nice nice and sunny for most of the weekend. And, and as always, at Monaco, you know, qualifying, uh, qualifying is everything. And in, I mean, in both Formula 3 and Formula 2, there were plenty, plenty of incidents in, in qualifying. Obviously, once you uh, once you set the grid for the race or the races, then um, you don't expect too much overtaking. But uh, you know, I think particularly the Formula Three drivers were very much looking forward to, you know, um, the first visit of, of the modern era of FIA Formula Three to uh, to the circuit. It was new for a lot of them. Obviously, a big challenge, and there was a general feeling, I think, in the paddock that the the guys who'd been there in Formula Regional had a, a bit of an advantage that they knew the circuit, and that's probably. Kind of how it uh, how it worked out in in qualifying and and the race with with Mini Boganovic and and Aaron. Um, so uh, I mean, definitely there. I think the you know the standout performance was was Gabriel Mini's qualifying lap, which was just just phenomenal speed to take pole for the for the feature. Um, and then in in uh, in Formula Two, I guess the you know the main talking point was probably uh, probably around you know Jack Doohan's crash and then uh, Victor Martins being very fortunate to not run into Marshall's cars, drivers, whatever was across the track at Massonet, just just getting out of the way in the last minute, and and then his penalty. Um, we can discuss whether that was harsh enough, um, given the circumstances and what you know happened to Pastor Maldonado many many years ago, um, and obviously then what happened after the the red flag and how the safety car kind of broke up the broke up the order. But um, uh, obviously the reverse grids are a little bit a uh, little bit stranger than normal, well, even stranger than normal at Monaco, that um, it doesn't really give anybody a chance to uh, to fight back through. But, uh, you know, again, Frederick Vesti in, in the Formula 2 feature race, outstanding. Paul Cher, again, consistently near the front, always in Monaco. And uh, as I said, Gab Gabriele Mini, outstanding in qualifying and then justifiably taking taking the feature race win. Yes, well, from my side, I guess it's been more recent, more recent. So it's a bit still sinking in a bit, sinking in a bit. It's been, as you know, a very busy weekend there in, in Barcelona. The, it started on already on Thursday with Campos Racing was celebrating 25 years on track. So there were some events we attended, of course. On Thursday and then throughout the weekend, it was really, really busy. We also had some issues with the Wi-Fi and, and another stuff. Unfortunately, it's a classic in the in the Formula Two and Formula Three paddock. Not gonna lie, but yeah, the the atmosphere was amazing. It was great to be back on the ground for a Grand Prix, and obviously, 
really positive to to see everyone. It was a very special weekend for campus, not only because they celebrated 25 years in, in junior motorsports, which with all that's been going on in the team lately, it's a massive achievement, but also because Pepe Marti achieved their maiden future FIA Formula 3 made a future race wing, which was outstanding, an outstanding performance from, from Pepe. They, he achieved pole on, on Friday and by a safe margin already, and, and then he went on to, to win the future race comfortably. So, yeah, then in Formula 2, obviously, uh, Roger mentioned earlier that Jack Duhan Duhan's crash in, in Monaco, he was convinced he would be there up at the front in Barcelona and he had a, a really strong qualifying despite having to replace the, the chassis after after Monaco. But the truth is that unfortunately during the races he, he had some issues, he couldn't obviously end in the podium, which was a bit disappointing for him. But at least some good points, which I'm sure he he values. And obviously we had a very strong performance from Prema, both drivers, Bestie winning on Saturday and then Berman winning on strong fashion on Sunday. They seem to, to be now ahead of ART Grand Prix after the start of the season, they had very slowly. But now they seem to, to have the upper hand on, on ART. Then we had Dams, who was also quite strong in, in the earlier rounds. Now, not really struggling, but not that for fighting at the, at the front for the wins. And yes, really strong performance as well from, from Richard Escher, especially in, in race one. He came back. With, with great pace and the ring, and also Victor Martin had a, had a very much needed strong weekend with double podium to third places, which definitely we will appreciate. Of course, the controversy of Monaco was there, but I mean, with all the mistakes he's made and, and everything, I guess, these this results are reassuring him for, for the future. Let's talk about Monaco and that it was really, it was just such a messy, um, messy race in in Formula 2 with the handling of the, I, I want to say Formula 2, I probably got that wrong now, but the handling of the safety car and that crash and how close it was to being something catastrophic. And I remember thinking at the time, before we saw what happened. Well, that's a harsh penalty, but reasonable. And then when we saw what happened, it's like that that could have been so much worse than what it was. I mean, maybe it's just uh, seeing a car of that livery driving towards people on a, on a racetrack slash racing area. We've seen that a bit too many times this, this season. But what, what do we make of not just that, but just the how messy that kind of restart was as well yeah i think uh i, I think you're right i mean it's uh it's obviously blind going into massonet and where with doing you know across the track basically is is fairly unusual place to go off and, and way to be you know for the car to be stranded across the track obviously i you know i haven't seen the telemetry we haven't seen the telemetry how much martin's backed off um, but it looks, you know, when you see the onboard, it, it's millimeters. And, you know, I, I, I would say he's, I mean, he's extremely fortunate to have been racing in Barcelona, to be honest. I think, uh, I would say without, without knowing obviously how much he'd, he'd backed off, but it was very close to, uh, to a catastrophic incident, obviously, you know, his skill to react in the last minute. Um, and then he was he was fortunate again that it, when he did get the drive through penalty, um, because the way the safety car had come out before the red flag and had just picked up the first eight, 
So when they released them again, which which obviously gave those who hadn't pitted the chance then under the red flag to uh, to change tyres basically without penalty, which sort of mixed up the order and screwed the race for for some people. But then when when they released them, the safety car. Um, still had the, the rest of the field from ninth onwards in front of the safety car as it had picked it up. It released them to, to catch up to the back of the field, but then immediately they waved the green flag and started the race. So from ninth onwards, everybody was half a lap behind, which is just just ridiculous, really. I mean, you know, you've, you've got to... And we've had lots of incidents around waving cars through behind the safety car, but uh, you know you've got to give people a chance, and, and that just seemed absolutely, absolutely crazy decision. And obviously, that then meant when Martin served his penalty, he only dropped to eighth because the rest of the field was so far back. I I didn't get to watch. Yeah, I didn't get to watch the incident live, but I was with. I'm quite friendly with a few race directors in other series. And as much as this shone really badly on Martin's and that incident, like the reaction from people in other paddocks across Europe, at least the one I was in and and the one in Britain, was just kind of how bad the race control decisions were that weekend. Like genuine, not even disappointment, just kind of shock at the lack of consistency in decisions, the time it was taking to make these kind of decisions, and then making them so blatantly incorrect. Like, and it wasn't just that we were seeing very bad race control decisions at other tracks previous weekend as well so i think like if you were new to watching motorsport or if you were used to watching let's say formula one and then you were looking at junior series for the first time last weekend obviously monaco's kind of weekend where you're probably going to have more people watching motorsport than usual and also with indy it was pretty same in the indy 500 like it was just disappointment after disappointment of how to actually run a motor race and I think that set a very bad kind of impression of what the top echelon is like, what, you know, the highest levels of junior single seaters are like. Um, and not that Martin crashing into someone would have proven that point. But I think because in the end, all of the race control errors went without kind of financial consequence of cars crashing and stuff. Um, it then like there wasn't much you know because we had Barcelona next weekend people weren't talking about what was happening the weekend before everyone moved on very quickly and realistically I hope there's some kind of meeting of minds in the FIA or something like that because what happened in Monaco and what happened in elsewhere needs to be reviewed because it was just amateur and to a degree dangerous as well yeah it wasn't it wasn't a good thing to see. And like, like Roger said, though, we don't know how how fast he was going. Presumably the the stewards do and saw that he wasn't going as slowly as he should. But also, like like you say, it was an unsighted corner. So he was really coming around that corner not knowing what he was going to, going to come across. Um, on on slightly not not actually not slightly not any at all completely different, but. Also, something not being the driver's fault is we had a engine failure in that race as well, I believe, with a, a, some kind of mechanical failure which took Fittipaldi out of the race pretty early on, which is something we always hate to see, um, especially in Formula 2 when things like, especially in junior single seaters, when things like that could potentially be the first domino into a career-ending thing. Not that I'm saying this was in any way career-ending because he more than made up for that in the in Barcelona, but uh, uh, not the sort of thing we like to see in in Formula Two. Stuff that's not the driver's fault's happening. Yeah, I've, I mean, I think we've we've probably had this discussion many many times before, and uh, you know, as as you say, Bethany, I think in in a in a, a sort of a feeder series in a in a formula two or formula three you know you you need to have mechanical reliability and and you know we saw that last year and you don't want races and championships dis being decided by by mechanical failures that are not the fault of the driver or the team um and I mean, that seems to be an ever-ending topic i mean it was also 
the case with uh, Isaac Hadjar in the sprint race, who, who was leading. There was a, a very early safety car after the incident on the first lap. And then just as they as the safety car pulled in, basically Hadjar just didn't have any drive and just pulled to the side on the on the start finish straight. And and you know, you kind of felt quite sorry for for the guy, you know, leading at Monaco, even if it's in 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 a reverse grid race, and he's probably not had the best of luck and has has made errors, but uh you know, it would have been, I think, uh, you know, Iwasa, who, who ended up winning the race and was second, you know, admitted that he, it would have been very, very, very difficult to have got past to, to take the win. So, you know, to lose a victory is is obviously even worse than, than losing a, a points position. I think it's interesting how the drivers talk about it afterwards. I've noticed very, like doing in particular in the press conferences in in Monaco and in Barcelona probably even for that as well he's not blaming things on bad luck he, he he knows there's something wrong with the car that's outside of his control but he always makes a point of it being outside the team's control as well which I think is a really interesting way of handling it mentally because you're essentially going we couldn't have done anything differently to have a better forming car a more reliable car etc and clearly that has hurt his campaign he's even said that Alpine are aware that there is something that is slowing him down in F2 uh, which I find and like you know he's he's kind of teased it to us and obviously there's been a chassis change but he hasn't really got down to the nitty-gritty of why was Virtuosi so slow this year um, but clearly it was something the team didn't have answers for as well which is quite unusual in F2 when you've had the same technical package for several seasons and you've got a team that's kind of blind to why they're suddenly off the pace um, Victor Martins talked about it as well. He kind of said, obviously, he's a different team, but the way that even between him and Porsche, uh, when they're going to like debriefs and stuff and technical feedback, he as a rookie may not have as much confidence in the feedback he's giving, but the team would be like, oh, we know that if you want this to happen to the car, we can change this setting, et cetera. Whereas Porsche, with extreme confidence, knows what he's doing, knows what he wants to change. And then suddenly, like at Barcelona, they were lacking pace on one of the tire compounds. Uh, he's also mentioned that they had a mechanical issue earlier in the year that they just didn't know within the race weekend itself. They couldn't pinpoint what was the cause. I don't think it was a race ending one because um, he only mentioned it in passing. And then in a bit of flip side from Formula 2, uh, just to Indy Next at Detroit last weekend, we had a driver lead the race until two corners to go with a, like a, I think it's a half shaft, which I presume is part of the drive shaft. Uh, at the left rear, I think, and he had a failure with two corners to go. And despite being in Detroit, which is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from, uh, you know, all the team's bases, but it's also Detroit, so it's Motor City. So you've got the factories literally next door. Um, they managed to replace everything. And the next day he had the opportunity to go like, yes, I was denied a very strong haul of points on Saturday, but because it's a two race format and it's set using two traditional grids, he could then win the race on Sunday. In F2, we have admittedly like qualifying is essentially what sets the grids and you do have the opportunity to do well the next day but because there's a difference in the value of races like if you have a retirement in the feature race that's going to cost you way more than sprint race even if you're going for victory in the sprint race that's equivalent to a position further down the order in the feature race in points and obviously if you do have an issue on saturday that might actually then impact your sunday as well so that kind of highlights how it becomes even more important higher up the ladder particularly in europe to have a mechanical you know problem-free car and the interesting thing i think in indie next as well was compared to like monaco the smoothest street circuit in the world barcelona even Jeddah, like the tracks they've gone to are not mechanically hard on the car particularly like monaco is so slow speed you're not really putting any components under stress unless you crash uh, whereas Detroit was literally the bumpiest street circuit we have seen in years. And we're surprised. I think we only had three like major mechanical faults because of that. And two of them occurred in free practice. And then they basically had to raise the ride height and change things from that. So, you know, maybe it is quite literally a design fault. Things are outside control. But with a car that's a car and engine package, particularly a two that is several years into development and production, 
you really should have eked out all errors by now. There shouldn't be a way, unless the team is running the car wrong, for such mechanical errors to occur and for them to be happening in multiple teams across grid. Obviously, multiple teams have different approaches, but you're going to, you know, at the end of the season, you're going to look back at what you've done, why you've had those problems, and make sure you don't have them the next season. So for, like, the problems we're having now, and maybe towards the end of last season as well, I think might be down to the calendar being 14 rounds long. But having it this early in the season, uh, particularly where we had kind of two flyaways at break, and yes, we're now going on a longer run of races in July, but the cars should be at their kind of most relaxed almost uh, mechanically. They're putting under least stress, particularly with the circuits we've been on. So really unusual to see those kinds of faults. And although, like Bethany, you mentioned, it could be domino one in the collapse for career, I think with... A lot of the drivers who are already 50, 60 points back in the title race are going, oh, this season's so long that it doesn't matter if I'm having a shit weekend on Monaco or Barcelona because a good weekend elsewhere immediately brings me into the top 10 in the standings. And then you got four or five more rounds, six more rounds to show what you're made of, kind of. Well, I will. We'll, we will probably talk about Indian Hits more later, but I just want to say now that that was the most heartbreaking race I have ever covered. It was just so. He was, oh yeah, we'll talk about it later. But he was so, such a such a heartbreaking end to end of a race. So on to on to Spain, where the rain did not stay on the plane, and it had a major impact in the in the Formula Two race. It kind of ruined a lot of people's strategies, made other people's strategies work. It was it was a really exciting race to watch, and Alejandro, you were there. But how, how, talk us through that race. What did the beginning of it actually matter when the rain, when it, when it started to, when it started to dry up? Yeah, well, actually, before we start about the spring race, the, the weather forecast before the, the weekend said it would be almost every session, a session on the wet. But I don't know if fortunately or unfortunately, we didn't have much rain. I didn't get soaked, so I'm happy about that. But apart from that and getting into what matters, uh, I guess, yeah, the the early laps under the rain helped Frederick Bexty especially to build a, a, a gap on the lead, which helped him to, to play safe later. Also, the, the first few laps were, were determinant for, for some drivers who were able to make up positions really quickly, while others struggled to adapt to the, to the lack of grip and the water amount on track. Uh, there was something that really got my attention after the race in the past, the fact that there were several drivers, for many drivers, the the rolling start was not needed. For others, it was. It was mainly the those more experienced were saying that it was needed a, a rolling start, perhaps, because they felt that other not so much experienced drivers uh, could take them out of the race, could have taken them out of the race with a with a standing start. So I was curious again. Also, speaking about visibility, it, it was kind of surprising that those complaining about visibility were those running at the front of the field instead of those running at the back. And apart from that, yes, yeah, as you as you mentioned, uh, the track dried, oh, dried out. And yeah, that, that benefited pretty much Theo Porcher, who after the pit stop and, and the safety car came in three laps, he he went on to, to move from fourth to second place. It was he put the temper the tires up to temper to the restart we really well because he had so so much grip uh more than than the other cars and yes as i mentioned earlier in in the podcast it was also a, a great race for for the sure not so good for amari cordell who on friday was confident to be able to score some points after, you know, after uh, starting from from West Grip pole, but unfortunately for him, 
he wasn't able to hold on to the top onto the top eight, which is the positions that award points in, in the Formula 2 sprint race. To be honest, I was kind of surprised during the early stages of the race with his pace. I expected that he would drop back uh, quite sooner than what he did, but in the end, too many mistakes, track limits, he, he got two penalties, one for track limits, the other one for not serving the the first penalty during the pit stop, which that's a, ter a terrible mistake to, to make by the team. But yeah, apart from that, I think there is not much more to say. Drivers played it, most of the, the main contenders in the season played it safe and there wasn't much to gain me as the race is awarding very very few points so yeah and then on, on sunday as, as we said the alternate strategy worked pretty well for for victor martin and frederick Vesti. Vesti, who didn't find the right balance and wasn't comfortable in the car during qualifying was able to come back from eighth to fifth and also martin who started i think in seventh or sixth i, I don't remember right now. I think it was seventh place. He recovered to to third place, and he was really really close to overtaking Enzo Fittipaldi, who had a great feature race, covering second place there, and with great race pace. Hey, I think I skipped over Formula Three in Spain in, in Monaco and and Formula Three in Spain. I um I I don't know how much you want to want to talk about their their uh, Formula 3's Monaco performance, but I think I think it's worth shouting out Pepe Marti. He's really kind of snuck up on me. He's kind of become the become the Ralph Boschong of of Formula 3. I think in that he just appeared out of nowhere and now he's doing really well. And Catampos Racing as a whole is doing has been doing really well. Um. Hi, Andrea, you're, you're looking at me like I've done, said something wrong or something, but they've, they've just really, they've really, they've, they've, compared to last year, it's just been so, so great and second in the, second in the championship now is, is Marty. Yes, Marty, as, as you say, second in the championship, but I, I don't know if that comparison doesn't sound really right to me, let's say. I mean, he uh, has been doing it four, or five, or six years, like Boshong. It's more of a, of, of a sort of, oh, you're here. That's that's surprising. And then it keeps. He it's not a one-off performance. He's he's continued to be doing, doing pretty good. Yeah, that that's the thing. I mean, he he was already strong back in twenty twenty one in in a Spanish Formula Four Championship, which was his first year in in single seater racing. I think he was third in, in the standings, if I'm not wrong. And if he wasn't third, it was close to it. And then he stepped up to FIA Formula 3, of course. He had some struggles last year coming new into, into the series. He hadn't tested much because, obviously, he had just stepped up from, from Formula 4. So, yeah, Hanjira quite a difficult year last year, of course, especially with qualifying has taken a, a bit to, to adapt. And then perhaps he was a bit too eager to recover those positions in the races, which led to him having some accidents. But this year he has started really, really strong. He won in Bahrain the sprint race. He won in Monaco as well the sprint race. And here in Spain, he had an outstanding performance with and then getting into the points on, on Saturday with a calm and smooth recovery to eighth place. And obviously on Sunday, it was a great display and under uh, lots of pressure because, you know, I was there in the paddock and on Sunday morning, there was lots of people surrounding campus tent wanting to wish him luck to have a few words with, with Pepe before the race. So, you know, when there is... All, all the eyes are were were on him this weekend actually after Friday because the other campus racing drivers didn't have a, have a a great qualifying both on F two and F three and he was on pole so all the hopes to have for campus of having a, a great home Grand Prix on, on its anniversary celebration were on 
Pepe Martic been win on, on Sunday and he did so they were able to celebrate there at the Panorama Village. They had the, the building they have for, for the whole weekend for their guests and everything to celebrate the, the team's anniversary. And yeah, of course, you know, Pepe, uh, the, the team has been rebuilding lately, so it's it is difficult to to kind of the Formula, Formula 3 structure to be there on the ball every single weekend. So the fact that he's really up there in second place, just 24 points behind Bortoletto, uh, who is the, the leader of the championship at the moment, uh, for me, is, is I think a, ma a massive achievement. This may be one other driver that I'd give a shout out to across the two weekends in Formula 3, which is Taylor Barnard. Um, I think, uh, you know, he was, he was quite confident going, going into the two races. I mean, they've been very quick in, in testing in Imola and were obviously quite disappointed when, when Imola didn't happen. Um, probably showed a bit of inexperience in, you know, in both events, but I mean, to be on the front row in Barcelona, he's obviously, you know, it's it's great for Yenta as well. He's obviously stepped up. He's relatively inexperienced, you know, coming from Formula Four um, straight in, and obviously did did the Middle East. Um, so I think uh, you know that was very impressive and seemed to be on the pace in both both events and was quick at Monaco, which said is is difficult, particularly for those who haven't been there in regional. I was actually just looking. We were talking the unreliability in Formula Two. What surprised me. I think I've got this right. There were five drivers who scored points in all four races in Formula Three in Monaco and Barcelona, which, you know, when they give points for 10 to score five of them scoring points in all four, which was Bortoletto, Marti, Aaron, Colopinto, and Barnard, um, which I think is, uh, you know, it's quite, quite impressive. I mean, Bortoletto obviously wasn't quite on the pace um, and was very happy to score good points. Colopinto had some good overtakes, also, also Monaco, one on Barnard, which, you know, doesn't happen too often. But uh, there were some good, strong performances also, you know, outside some of the top names and probably, you know, Formula 3 seems to be a bit more open probably than Formula 2, where we've got, let's say, four, four drivers who are now sort of establishing themselves at the top of the, the overall standings. So I think we're skipping some, we're skipping forward in time a bit, but not going down the levels we'll stick with Indian X, as I said it, as uh, as Ida hinted at, it was one of, it was the most, um, it was the most heartbreaking race I have ever covered. And I've been covering races for quite some time. Um, Northern Seagull was um, literally, literally two corners away from the end of the race when and had dominated that race was five seconds ahead of the rest of the field and they the half shaft broke there was literally nothing they could do about that and and he and and he slowed down managed to cut across the line in p8 but then came back in in race two with a victory in not not quite as dominant fashion it was much closer that second race but equally hard for the first time is this 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 Detroit track they've gone they've gone away from the island down to downtown Detroit it looks like how I would draw a circuit in that it was made that the line the lines are all straight but the track was the it was the bumpiest thing what was so bumpy I, I think I'm pretty sure it was Detroit drivers were talking about you if you if there's one big bump and you know the bumps there you can deal with it but you go onto that bump or you try to avoid that bump and there's another bump and you don't know what to do with that bump. There were so many crashes in practice but then in in qualifying they kind of ease out of it a bit but still lots of crashing in races and I think we learned. One of the things I learned was these cars are very durable in that you can crash into people a lot and you, you don't ruin your race. Uh, so um, I, I think you were following that race as well. What, what, what did you make of it? 
Uh, yeah, I listened to it on the radio because that's how I normally experience IndyCar and Indy Next. I thought, based on like I'd already got the reaction from the drivers in practice, and I, I was in a press conference, I think after qualifying as well. So, like comparing the Indy Next drivers' reaction to the IndyCar drivers' reaction was really interesting because the Indy cars have a longer wheelbase, and basically when you're going over a bump, um, the best way to kind of think of it is like a seesaw, like a playground. Uh, the kind of the weight is going to be as you're going over the bump the rear end's still going to be sticking to the ground and the front end's going to be the air and it's going to take longer for then the weight distribution to for the front to drop down and the rear to kind of bounce up into the air um, and that often means that if you're going so fast you almost fly over the bump and then land flat on the bottom of the car and that can not only be very damaging for the car but also in terms of traction it's going to make it very hard to just stay on throttle down a straight because if you've got like a minuscule kind of input in the steering wheel but your front wheels off the ground as soon as they land it's going to suddenly turn you into a wall particularly if you're going at fast speed so as a track very very dangerous and i i think it made sense for the indycar drivers to be that kind of wary of how bad it was whereas indy next cars are shorter it was less of an issue but because like Although in Indy Next, you do do quite a few street circuits. Um, in recent years, we've had the calendar kind of shortened. It's only a one race per weekend usually. This weekend it was two, but that's because it's always known as the, the jewel in Detroit. Uh, and a lot of the drivers kind of found the walls straight away in practice, which then meant like Christian Rasmussen, I think, only did two laps, representative pace. And so- Christian Rasmussen had a problem at the start of uh, at the start of practice as well. So he didn't actually even get out there until like five minutes towards the end. Yeah, so everyone kind of had a head start on him and learning the track. And it was the same for anyone who then like retired in race one, you then missed out on 45 laps of learning the track as well. So it kind of made sense as the weekend went on, everyone got kind of closer and it was harder to dominate. And it also meant it was kind of easier to overtake because you actually knew where you could overtake potentially. But then you drivers afterwards are just saying like, oh, yeah, I had the pace to get past them. But was I going to risk trying to pass them? No, I wasn't. Uh, and particularly with the caution periods and that meaning people like saved push to pass until the track's gone green again. You then got everyone with loads of push to pass at the same time, which kind of kind of renders it useless. Um, so overall, I think it doesn't necessarily make for an exciting race. But you always, always, unlike like Monaco now, I don't watch Monaco and go, oh, this driver could crash at any corner. Whereas with Detroit, it sounded like, yes, there is a risk of crashing literally everywhere. You're on the edge of your seat as a driver and as a fan, um, which I think is good in some ways. But obviously, if it gets too chaotic, then you're not really going to get a proper race in. Uh, and also to the point where if you have too many laps under yellow, then there's no time management involved either. Um, personally, I'd rather go back to Belle Isle um although that's Belle Isle's more exposed to the harsh winters which is what actually makes the asphalt kind of break up and stuff and the big temperature differences between summer and winter and they have to repave a lot of Detroit every year basically because of you know it is basically Canada uh, actually Canada kind of wraps around Detroit so Canada is technically south of it that's how far north it is um so that's interesting and the fact that Indy likes Indy next to get to do two races this weekend I think was key and the drivers all had a lot of good feedback of having the opportunity because you know everyone in F2 gets it F3 the series below Indy next back in the day used to and I think when we saw drivers transition from that series to IndyCar it was easier because you were getting so much mileage in a season that you could then you know spend one race the weekend learning a track learning more how the car works and then the other race going for results particularly if you're further down the order and if you're in a rookie season whereas now it feels like every race counts in the title race in Indy Next and that's sometimes a dangerous thing because you have drivers who make two small mistakes in two consecutive weekends and then they lose 60 points compared to their rivals and it looks like they're really bad driver because they're ninth in the standings but it's all down to two very small errors with so few races um the other thing was Louis Foster he was like what four five tenths a second faster than everyone else in qualifying like huge advantage and it looked like he carried that into the races but then he kind of crashed so it was uh rendered a bit useless it shows that Aminola and Siegler as well that in Indy Next it's a car you can come in as a rookie from sports cars or from Indy Pro 2000 or from F2 even and within like a few race weekends you can be absolutely on it whereas I don't think 
for F2, unless you're coming up from FIA Formula 3, which is a very similar car, you're not going to adapt to it as seamlessly as the kind of variability that the Indianex car has. And, you know, we see some drivers going to and from Japan as well, and, and, and that's fine. But you don't see drivers from other series, like from Euro Formula, which is arguably a faster car than F3, going to F2. They go back down to sideways move to FI Formula 3 to then learn that car to be ready for F2. Whereas I think Indy Next is a car that does prepare you for IndyCar, but it's a car that anyone can take to and be fast in. And particularly this season, we've seen some drivers who you wouldn't expect to be at the front, but when they kind of get the feedback, it does sound it's like a driver-led performance. They've told the team that they want like a, a far looser car. A bit like if Dan Tictum turned up in Indy Next. You can imagine him telling the engineers exactly what he wants, turning up, and if he's four fastest, he'll be furious, and then the next day he'll be winning by a country mile. So um, I think that makes the series good, but the Detroit track arguably just needs repaving like every year now if they're going to continue using it. Yeah. In in Foster's defence, he, he crashed in qualifying, which was his fault, and then in the second qualifying, qualified with a the bent car but in when he crashed in the race he was crashed into straight away and taken out of the race but so i think it's i i, I maybe maybe i overestimated foster due to his junior credentials but he he's been a bit hit and miss this season in in a few different ways um yeah him him and ollie behrman have basically been very similar in that they've either been the driver like the fastest driver winning or they've been kind of off the podium, not getting the results that they potentially have the pace to get. Uh, and the thing with Foster as well is he's at Andretti, which I think is three full-time cars. And then you've got HND Motorsports that's running nine cars. And obviously with Foster as well, his teammates aren't exactly great benchmarks to learn from, are they? Every time, every time I'm like, oh, I don't remember what drive, what team this driver drives for. Oh, it's HMD, obviously. It's it's it's. I, I really enjoyed the racing. There were some really tight battles, and I, most of the caution periods were from drivers finding the walls by themselves rather than being put in contact between two drivers, which is why which is why I say the cars are really it's a bit more sports car esque, um, touring car esque in that the drivers can bang wheels a couple of times and and still survive, which is. Which is good, especially on a street circuit where there will be banging wheels and you're trying to overtake. Uh, so to the multitudes of lower level races, um, you guys have got to shout out the, the 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 lower level races you want to talk about because I could not keep track of all of them. Formula Four was on this weekend with um, wins for James. I I apologise, Pizik. Um, Noah Lyle, who missed who missed the weekend back in back in Brands Hatch, but was back for last weekend and this weekend, and then a win for William McIntyre, which was I feel like a long time coming. He's only been in the championship since the start of the season, but it felt like we we'd all kind of been expecting a expecting a win there for him, and he's up to second in the championship behind Louis Sharp, who. Didn't win this. Who hasn't won since the first round of the championship, but has been really showing how you win a Formula Four level race this Formula Four championship this year by just doing well when you're not doing great. Either you are nodding. Do you have anything to add on Formula Four? How did you manage to watch all these different? Yeah, teams? I. I I didn't watch British F4, admittedly, but um, last weekend was very significant because it was the first race weekend in Britain we've had with the new track limits rules, which have caused fury and anguish among club racers everywhere. Um, you know, like 60-year-olds driving their, I don't know, old touring cars and stuff. And we haven't really had feedback from 17-year-olds going, oh, this is going to be horrible for our races. Um, but I think it's almost better that they have this rule for the young drivers because even if track limits aren't as strict at the higher levels, ultimately as a driver, the more used to being in track limits you are, the less likely you are going to be penalised the more you go up the ladder. So it's a logical move, particularly for you know national series like British F4. Uh, on a track like Fruxton, although it's very high speed, 
you know, if you go off at Frankston, you put wheel over the curbs, you are just going to kind of skate off entirely. So it wasn't the best track to demonstrate it on. Uh, and I'm not sure if Frankston's a track that has track sensors or is dependent on like eyewitnesses for track limits. But it's, yeah, I think maybe we're not going to quite see the significance yet, but we could have races later in the year where a driver is going to be so convinced that they were in track limits. And it turns out because the very edge of the tyre was you know, they're on the curb, but the edge of the tire is not, they're going to be penalized. Um, and particularly in very small cars where you can go two, three wide into a corner and someone inevitably is going to have to go for that wider outside line. I think that's going to make the difference. Um, same with GB4, which is obviously the other F4 series in, in Britain. Track limits have been a bay in my existence covering a, a another British championship. But I, I can see it causing so much upset um even if the drivers will be there like yeah my bad i was outside the track limits but it didn't did it really did it really improve my time no it didn't improve my time these arguments they'll have they'll have a, like a, a trilogy worth books worth of of excuses as to why exceeding the track limits didn't really matter but it, it's i i can see it causing a lot of upset i i like you say it's important to them to to keep within track limits and to to learn now that this is what you've got to do because you don't want to be I'd rather if it were me I'd rather be losing a race win now at Formula 4 level and know what track limits are than get to Formula 1 and lose my lose my race first race win because I was exceeding track limits there but um it would also be really, really disappointing if race wins, and especially if it turns out the championship gets decided because you were a tiny smidgen bit off at at turn three at Knockhill, and then you're then then that's going to that 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 will be the thing that in ten years' time you'll be pointing at. I lost the championship because of that 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 because of that track limits rule that nobody liked so i think it's yeah i think the main thing it's going to be will be the formula ford festival because brands hatch is one of the ones with sensors it's a event in the winter so the tires are cold you're going to be doing a lot more sliding it, there's literally less grip um and also because those cars are so small and the drivers are so used to racing each other side by side they will literally be going three four wide into paddock hill bend and inevitably someone's gonna like go off and it's we're gonna have you know you have like 35 cars in some of those races and we might have results taking 20 minutes to be determined and particularly in the final i can imagine everyone barreling into the first corner in the final and then suddenly like you have all three of the drivers at the front being under investigation for track limits that kind of thing so i think that's where it's going to really matter and um yeah i mean you never want a race to be decided in that way but also having an example set of how costly it can be is always a useful way for these rules to be implemented because it then proves they're a right to implement them because if maybe if they hadn't implemented those rules a driver could have unfairly won obviously you wouldn't quite say it's unfair to just rub over a track limit and win a race but um you can see like by being strict you're stopping other violations taking place essentially yeah for sure so so far from from what we've seen, they've been pretty quick in giving the like. There's there's not so much under investigation as you've got penalty. So it's it's been it's been pretty quick. So hopefully it will be will continue to be quick in the single seater races with thirty forty cars. It seems, and we don't won't. Um, we won't be waiting for the results too far. Um, speaking of 3040 cars, I think it's worth mentioning that this was the biggest ever British Formula 4 grid um, with 23 cars. I feel like the, the PR team will be a bit annoyed if we don't mention that it was the biggest ever grid with with 34 cars with um, a new driver, Mika Abrahams from South Africa coming in and scoring the points in his in the in the final race of the weekend. So Outside Britain, what other Formula 4 and Formula 3 that aren't FIA Formula 3 races have been happening these past couple of weeks that anyone wants to give a shout out to? Euro Formula, which is 
proper referee, even though it's not actually a referee anymore. Um, that wasn't, I can't even remember what happened in those races pretty much. Juju Noda had a, a crash, but it wasn't really significant. Uh, it was the first weekend on Prelly tyres. That was actually really interesting because the tyres they're using were designed for Formula 4 cars with obviously far lower cornering speeds. Formula 4 cars is more like mechanical grip than an aero grip. So that totally changes the kind of stiffness of the car you can set it up with. And some teams are like, oh, yeah, it was fine. We ran the tyres this weekend and we didn't suddenly barrel off at Blanchemont by losing grip or anything. But we can't go a full season with Formula 4 tyres. Like We need either a change to the front area of the car so the balance is different so therefore we don't have to make such extreme setup changes because it's almost like if you start a race of understeer even like a 12 lap 12 lap race can end it with oversteer because of the tires are not designed for the car um and then in italian f4 we had 40 plus cars crazy grid size and a few very scary crashes at spa and a lot of the team bosses kind of just getting very angry that these 15 and 16 year olds are treating it like a video game and they're not realizing the dangers and also oddly being annoyed that yes they've got big damage bills but annoyed that like drivers parents are just willing to pay them and that people don't kind of see that if you're having incidents like that maybe motorsport isn't worth the the money but from one of the team bosses they were just very surprised how people just keep throwing money at this level and I think because their kids they almost know that the kids are going to be in 27th place trying to be a hero to overtake 26th place and cause a colossal crash and stuff so that's scary there another weird F4 thing last weekend was Danish F4 was running with Formula Nordic which is Formula Renault 1.6 and the first time they did it F4 cars are massively quicker which I think shows for entry-level formula how much development-wise, car technical-wise, it's improved in the last decade because Formula Renault 1.6 was, you know, no one berated it as an entry-level formula 15 years ago, but it shows how much we've moved on that Formula 4 cars are massively quicker. But then at Carl's Koga last weekend, which used to be European F2 track, they're actually very, very close. Uh, and I don't know if it was to do with kind of the tightness of the corners that with the Formula Nord, the smaller Formula Nordic cars, you can basically get around them a lot easier. Uh, and we ended up having proper wheel-to-wheel battles and then particularly navigating through traffic because there are some really, really slow cars. The Nordic cars could just kind of dart through them all, whereas the F4 cars had to basically wait until the pit straight. So we had a Formula Nordic car, which was technically slower on pace than the best F4 car, winning by 11 seconds because they could lap everyone with ease, uh, whereas the Formula 4 cars couldn't. Right, if we got no more racing that we've has been happening. Let's talk about some racing that will be happening. Um, news breaking today, Formula 3 will be back in Macau. Um, we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but I think it's worth worth talking about it here now. For, uh, we've had, I think it's Chinese Formula 4 that's been doing it the past couple of years. We spoke about how much we all love Macau in the last podcast, or the podcast before last, whenever it was. Um, so, Good to good to have Formula Three back. Feel really excited about this, or is it just are we over Macau? We've got Detroit now for our street circuit needs. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in 2020, um, an F3 was supposed to race there in 2021. But I do remember they kind of potentially at one point didn't want them racing in 2020 because he realised the current FIA Formula Three cars are simply too wide for Macau. Um, which I think would have been the Macau Grand Prix organising committee kind of making that point. Um, so in some degree, it's kind of surprising that F3's returned to Macau, but also Macau almost isn't Macau without F3. Like it's that I'm more interested about the fact that they're running it over two weekends, but all of the headline of series, so you've got F3 World Cup, GT World Cup and TCR World Tour, they're all happening on the second weekend. They haven't announced any of the series racing on the first weekend, which could mean we've got another big series racing there, or they're going to do, which I think has actually really been good in the last few years, making it an actual domestic Asian motorsport event, having uh, Chinese F4, TCR China, which will actually be racing on the second weekend, which is a bit odd. Um, I'd be interested to see what other series they invite beyond the ones we found out today. Yeah, as you said, I think we were we were massively positive when we were talking about the 
know, the triple crown of junior series about Macau and its place on the calendar. And it's, it's obviously, I think, you know, great to have it. I want to say back, but obviously it, it has been running Chinese, Chinese Formula 4. I, I'm also skeptical that the current FIA Formula 3 cars are the right cars to run there. Just uh, to too big, too too quick. What I, I would love to see is a sort of World Cup of Formula 4. If you could find a chassis, maybe something like the motorsport games. But uh, I mean, it, basically the, the old days of, of Formula 3 when it brought, you know, the best drivers from the different series to race against each other. So some something of that. And I think you know, as, as Ida was just saying from from Carl's Koga, that the, the modern Formula Four cars are, are fairly serious piece of equipment. So I, I would quite like to see that, but I mean, there is no doubt that Macau and a Formula Three race is is always going to be be special. But uh, I'm I'm always slightly nervous seeing them all barreling down to Lisboa on the first lap with the speeds that they're going to be reaching. Okay, I'm going to completely ignore the fact that you guys are saying that the cars are too big and just point out that Formula One might be looking for a replacement for 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 the Imola weekend. Um, it won't happen, but it would just be really amusing that Formula One's return to China would be in Macau. Um, it won't happen, but if we're, we're talking about series that might be competing in that first weekend, why not? are too big that's why not but why not be interesting with the current size of formula one cars whether they could actually even get round that hairpin i can't remember what it's called where they have the permanent yellow flags i'm not sure that they've got the the turning circle to actually to actually get round without doing three point turns but uh yeah nice nice uh nice dream maybe on the video game Alejandra, are you anything to add to our terrible Macau suggestions? My terrible Macau suggestions. You guys are putting in great suggestions. No, not really. Not really. No, nothing to add at all. I mean, Formula One in Macau is obviously a dream that won't happen. But just a dream, mainly. That's what, what that's called a dream, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, no, not really much to say. A rumour I heard, like being reported on from Spain, was that the future of the Grand Prix might be a Madrid street circuit rather than Barcelona, which it's always weird when a circuit like does an upgrade and then suddenly F1's like, actually, we don't want you anymore. But is there any truth to the fact that, you know, RFEDA are potentially considering moving the race to a street circuit? Uh, the feeling it's, it's it's not, I would say, from, from what I feeling within Spanish motorsports that Madrid is just one of the many venues that have proposed themselves in Spain. We From time to time we have one that appears and claims that want a Grand Prix, but uh, at the moment I don't think there is actually uh, an actual risk for the circuit of Barcelona that the the race is taken from from them although the organization once again disappointed they need to to look into it because there were really issues with parkings really bad organization with the parkings the entrance the accesses the exits uh, it was a really mess they had people climbing the walls to, to leave the, the circuit on saturday afternoon which was actually not a very good image to, to give to the world. But yeah, you know, at least they sorted the, the inside stuff with the the water water fountains and, and all that, which was, I guess, something very much needed, but still some work to do. I know two F1 journos who were like 800 metres away from the entrance and had been there for an hour. And then like the car park slash circuit staff directed them one way and they ended up further away from the track and stuck for an hour hour and like people were just abandoning their cars on the way in and they'd been there from 7 30 and it was approaching like nine o'clock and then like the stewarding staff whatever were getting very pissed off because then that was just blocking the roads further um total chaos outside of spain actually uh interesting thing today for drivers who are coming back from spa uh for gb3 and 
probably not French F4, but mainly GB3, the Dutch rail network went down this morning. So anyone who had driven their team truck um, or like anyone who basically just got to Netherlands and then was maybe getting the ferry or going to Amsterdam Schiphol to fly back to Britain or wherever, they could not. The whole country transport network went down. And yeah, I heard some chaos stories from that. So hopefully everyone got back. <laughs> Right, well, that's been our our bumper podcast. We have lots of racing, some news, some gossip, some things that won't happen that we can dream about. Okay, I think that's our way through for this podcast. Thank you guys for joining me and thank you for listening and join us next time for another Formula Scout podcast.